0: Good morning and welcome, Calvary Quakertown. It's great to have you join us this morning. We're in a series that we're calling The Prequel, in which we're looking at some characters and some chapters of the backstory to the familiar story of Jesus. And we're primarily focusing on the book of Judges. And if you remember, Judges are not role models that we need to follow. The Judges are dysfunctional people And often they do despicable things, but amazingly, God still uses them to accomplish what he wants done in the world. And that's good news for all of us, because as you look around, we're kind of a group of dysfunctional folks, and we have a track record of not doing great things. And so we're just the kind of people that God loves to change and God loves to use to accomplish his will. Now, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you know kind of how the story has gone. We've talked about some twists and turns, and this morning we're going to talk about some ups and downs. But the ups and the downs continue to live out the same theme. And as we come to Judges 6, we're going to see the same thing repeated again. Judges 6 begins like this. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Does that sound familiar by now? The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years God gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of the oppression. How many of you remember the cycle we've been talking about? Good, nine of you. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, here's the cycle for those of you that haven't gotten it. Maybe you need to jot it down. You write it somewhere near Judges in your Bible, or you can write it on your phone. Here's the cycle that repeats over and over and over again in the book. It starts with rebellion, and rebellion begins with a failure to remember. Remember? The Israelites are not remembering to keep God in the center. They forget God, not that they lose track of the data, but they forget to live lives wrapped around who he is and what he's done. They forget that something else takes its place, and God's not going to bless the competition. Then oppression comes because of their rebellion. Well, eventually, they come to their senses as they're in in the midst of oppression, and they say man, we shouldn't be living like this. Life's really hard. And they cry out to God, repentance, eh, with a question mark. At least they cry out to God. And the next step is God sends a, All right, let's try that again. Rebellion, oppression, repentance, and that's how it works, right? Rebellion, oppression, repentance, and rescue. God sends a rescue. But that's not what happens in chapter 6. We get a little twist and turn at the beginning of the story before we get to the ups and the downs. Look at what happens next in the story. God does not send a rescuer. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet. I don't know about you, but if you need a warrior to win the day, you'd be pretty ticked off if God sent you a preacher. They need deliverance. They need rescue. God sends a preacher. Why in the world would God send a preacher instead of somebody to rescue them? Well, maybe that goes back to the rebellion comes because they have forgotten. They're no longer remembering. Here's the prophet's sermon. No complaints that you don't get short sermons like this. But this is the guy's whole sermon. This is what the Lord did. The God of Israel says, I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. That's the long first point. So what does the preacher say? Here's God, and here's what he did. This is all in the past. Here's God, and here's what he did. He rescued you out of Egypt. He rescued you through the desert. He rescued you and brought you into the promised land. That is who God is, and that's all that God's done. Point one this is what God's done. The short second point is this is what they've done, but you've not listened to me. That's the whole sermon. Here's what God did, here's what you did. In case you haven't noticed, that's basically how every sermon goes, right? Here's who God is, here's what God's done. Here's who you are. Here's what you've done. And if you put them all together, here's the result that grace brings. Now, why would God send a preacher and not a rescuer? Well, maybe it's because they need to learn the difference between regret and repentance. Remember, we have a question mark after repentance. There's a big difference between regret and repentance. Regret is you're sorry about the consequences. Repentance is you're sorry about what caused the consequences. Now, let's be honest. We often have a lot more regrets than we do repentance, right? So, for example, if you're driving on the turnpike, you know, making good time as you're driving along, and all of a sudden you see those flashing lights behind you, do you repent or are you in regret? You're not repenting because you were going too fast. You're, re- you're regretting that the guy caught you going too fast. Men, remember when you... Uh, kind of having an argument a discussion with your wife and you think of those really clever things to say right but this time you don't bite your tongue you just kind of let it fly right Um, are you repentant that you said it no 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 you regret what's coming next right (laughs) children do you regret that you didn't do what your parents said heck no you regret the consequences you're not repentant over what you did and that's the message that the preacher is giving to the Israelites. So they call out, God help us, we're being oppressed. God doesn't send a rescuer right away. He sends a preacher and says, yeah, you're regretting. You're not repenting. That's a problem. And that's still our problem, isn't it? We live with regret a whole lot more than we repent. So maybe we need to hear what the preacher says too. Well, next God is going to send the rescuer. And his name is going to be Gideon. Now, Gideon is kind of the central judge in the whole book. And that means I've got a problem and you've got a bigger problem. Here's the problem. There's more data, more stuff on Gideon in the book of Judges than all the other judges. There are like a hundred verses on Gideon. We're going to look at everyone this morning in great detail. Uh, no, we're not. We're going to look at, well, we could do a series on Gideon pretty easily. We're not doing that either. We're getting one message. We got baptisms at the end. We're going to try to kind of get through this in a reasonable length of time. And we're going to do it by helping you think of five ups and downs in his life. So here they are. I think we have a slide with five ups and downs, right? Here are the five ups and downs. Fear, faith, fleece, fight, fall. Fear, faith, fleece, fight, fall. Now, you may get lost in the details in the next 15 minutes or so. But if you keep the five Fs, like five F-bombs for the sermon, right? The five Fs of Gideon, you'll know where we are in the story. So let's say them together. Ready? Fear, faith, fleece, fight, fall. So even if you check out your mind, take a little break, take a nap, whatever, play on your phone. When you check back in, if you remember the five Fs, you'll kind of know where we are in the story. Gideon's story is a story of ups and downs. And the sad news is, if you look at the list, he doesn't end on an up note, he ends on a down note. Sad to say. Well, here we go. The first F is fear. Gideon is fearful. Gideon is one of those, you know, kind of afraid guys that is not brave and courageous. Gideon's not out in front leading the charge, Gideon is scared to death. He's at the back of the pack. Well, right after the prophet comes and preaches that little sermon, the angel of the Lord shows up and sees Gideon. Here's, here's the passage where he meets Gideon in chapter 6. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak tree in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, that's Gideon's dad, the son uh, whose son was Gideon. Now look what Gideon's doing. He's threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Brave, courageous guys don't thresh wheat in a wine press. Now, look, I'm I'm not a farmer, just in case you didn't know that. Uh, But I did read about thresh. Here's what threshing is. Do you ever know that, like, when you're growing wheat and stuff, and you can't eat everything that grows, right? You got to kind of beat the little kernels off of the stalk and the other junk, and it's got little husks on it, and so you take it and you beat it out, right? You thresh it. You separate the grain from the junk that's threshing. Now normally, if you're going to thresh wheat, you would do it in the open. Most likely, the best place, on a little hill somewhere where the be- where the junk can catch the breeze. So you beat it up until you get a pile of everything mixed up. You get grain in there, you get kernels of grain, you get a bunch of junk, chaff, all kinds of stems and stalks, and you then throw it up into the air. It's really good if there's a breeze blowing, Because all the junk is lighter than the grain and so the wind blows and blows the junk the chaff away and the heavier grain falls back down you do that a couple times you're left with grain you take it home you kind of mill it or whatever you do and you're ready to make bread where is Gideon threshing his grain in a wine in a hole why in the world would you thresh grain in a hole because you're scared to death the Midianites have been oppressing Israel for seven years and they were not interested in political control, they were interested in all the produce and all the profit that came from the land. So they would swarm into the land every harvest season, and they would take all the harvest, they'd take all the animals, they would take everything and leave again. So. Gideon finds a little bit of grain, finds a little bit of wheat. He's not going to go out in the open because the Midianites will come. He takes the grain and he's threshing it. He's beating it out and throwing it up in the wine press, which means he's going to be eating a lot of stems and stalks and stuff, right? Notice what the angel of the Lord says to him. The angel of the Lord says, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. In case you haven't, that's ironic, right? Mighty warrior? He's threshing wheat in a a hole in the ground, right? Mighty warrior? Now, here's what Gideon says. Mighty warrior, pardon me. Uh, But if the Lord is with us, why has all this stuff happened to us? Why are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about, where did they all go? Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hands of the Midians. Midianites. Notice, who is Gideon blaming for the mess they're in? God. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Is that right? Well, if he's with us, why am I in this hole in the ground trying to thresh wheat? Why are the Midianites oppressing us? Obviously, God's not taking care of us. Obviously, God has not followed through with his part of the bargain. Remember back to regret and repent again? Gideon is in full regret mode there's no repentance in what he says at all that's why the preacher had to come first and he still didn't get it now no nasty comments about preachers and oppression and things like that but Gideon doesn't get it he blames God for the mess they're in that's the fear part well eventually eventually the angel of the Lord says uh okay Gideon just to let you know, God's with Gideon and says, Well, before you leave, since we're kind of in the Middle East here, I need to show you hospitality. Please stay for a meal. So the angel of the Lord says, Okay, fine. So he sits down. Gideon goes and prepares the meal. He brings out the meal before God, and the angel says, um, Put it over there on the rock. He says, Why well, aren't you going to eat it? You put it on the rock. And take the broth that you made it from and pour that on the top. So now you got the meat, you got all that stuff in the broth poured on top. The angel of the Lord takes his staff, touches the meal, and it's consumed in an instant. Everything's gone. Gideon then says, wow, so if he's going to be with me, I guess we'll be okay. That's the fear chart part, moving us to the faith part. Well, the faith word comes next. And right after that, the angel has a little challenge for Gideon. Here's what the angel says to Gideon. Take one of your father's bulls, right? Take a bull from your father's herd, the one that's seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal. Cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of it, this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. What kind of person's Gideon? He's timid. He's fearful. God says, okay, Gideon, here's your assignment. Go home and tear down your daddy's altar to Baal. Chop up the Asherah pole and then destroy the tractor, right? Take the bull and kill the bull. Sacrifice the bull on the new altar you make to God. What do you think Gideon's thinking now? What the heck? I mean, he's afraid, scared for his life, and very well he should be. So here's what he did. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. That's amazing, right? I mean, this is a faith part here. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. Now I know that's kind of a snicker part, right? Yeah. Here's fearful Gideon. He's going to do what God says. He's not going to do it in the daylight. People can see him. He's going to sneak around at night. Here's the bottom line: he still did it. And you know, every once in a while, I'll, I'll hear someone say, "Well, that person has courage. They're not afraid at all." What? You realize courage is not the absence of fear. If you weren't afraid, you don't need courage. You just go do it. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is doing what you should do in the presence of fear. Gideon's scared to death. He's afraid of what his father's going to do. He's afraid of the townspeople. And so he does it at night, but he still does it. And the next part of the story reminds us that he really should have been afraid because the next morning when they find out what happened, the townspeople come to Gideon's house and they say to his dad, Joash, hey, bring out your son Gideon. We know it was him. Bring him out. We're going to kill him. He was afraid for good reason. Well, Joash says, well, look, you're all servants of Baal, just like I'm servants of Baal. Don't you think Baal's big enough to fight his own battles? So why are you picking up for Baal? Let let, let Baal kind of deal with it. Now, let, let me just say something about the faith part here. You do realize if the Israelites would have followed through with what God told them to do at the beginning... There would have been no Baal statue. There would have been no Asherah. There wouldn't have been this incident. But because they failed to do what God said in the beginning, now Gideon has to do it now in the middle. And he does it fearing his own people, fearing the people of God because their hearts are lashed to to serving idols. So Gideon in faith tears down the altar, builds an altar to God, sacrifices the bull. I mean, this is the faith season of Gideon's life. And that principle is always true. There isn't room in your heart or my heart for two number one priorities. Either Jesus is your number one priority or something else is. It can't be both End. And Gideon's learning that lesson. The Israelites have to learn that lesson all the time, and we need to learn that lesson repeatedly. There's not place in our lives for two number one priorities. And God's not content until he's your number one priority. And Gideon is living proof that the Israelites have put another priority into the center. And God says, look, before we go to battle against the Midianites, we need to first clean up our lives. So let's put God where he belongs to be, and then we'll go fight the middle. Let's fight the problem on the inside before we fight the problem on the outside. I wonder how many of us need to hear that same thing this morning. Before God's ready to fix the oppression on the outside, let's first fix the compromise position on the inside. Well, that's the faith part. Then we come to the fleece chapter. How many of you have heard about Gideon and his fleece? Yeah, well, Gideon. I'm not. You know, Gideon's a fearful guy, so maybe his fleece was kind of like his blankie. We're not sure, but anyway, Gideon had a fleece. Now, he just saw the hospitality meal consumed when the angel touched it with the staff, right? He just saw the townspeople's hearts turned as he destroyed the altar to Baal and Asherah and replaced it with an altar. He just saw all that stuff. And now God says, now it's time to go fight the Midianites. And Gideon says, but before we go, I really want to know. That's what the fleece is. So here are the fleece verses. Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand. He already said that, right? So Gideon says, if you're really going to do what you said you're going to do, I need to really know because I'm not really trusting right now. So if you're really going to do it, I need to know. Look, I'm going to take this wolf fleece and I'm going to put it on the ground. And in the morning, if the ground is dry, but the fleece is sopping wet, I'll believe that you're going to be with me and use me to deliver your people. And amazingly, and amazingly, God complies with that stupid test, right? I mean, I scratch my head and say, God, you're not going to do this, right? But God does it. I mean, God condescends to this guy that doesn't have any faith, right? After all that, Gideon still doesn't have any faith. He's still afraid. So the next morning, Gideon gets up. The fleece is sopping wet. He's wringing it out, right? His little blanket's soaked. Wringing it. And the ground is perfectly dry. But later that day, I'm guessing Gideon begins to think, huh, well, that's easy to do that part, right? After all, when the sun starts to come up, the ground that, you know, we're in a desert, by the way, the ground will dry up. The gr- ground will dry before the, th- before the fleece. The fleece will hold water longer. You know, we, we, need, we need round two. God, what you need to do next is have the fleece be dry and the ground soaking wet tomorrow morning. And amazingly, God does it the next morning the fleece is perfectly dry and the dew is all over the ground. Now, there are some people that actually use that as a means to help us determine what God would have us do. Uh, If you hang around churches that long or you watch uh, guys on TV, you may hear them talk about, well, you need to put out your fleece can I tell you, you don't have to put out your fleece, your blankie, or anything else. Gideon has a lack of faith problem. But here's how the, here's how the fleece thing works, right? Um, and whether or not you have a blankie and you play games with God, I know you've done things like this. Lord, if you want me to go to the Eagles parade on Thursday, <laughs> I'll wake up before 6 o'clock without the alarm. And you wake up, we say, oh, God must want me. You've never done that, right? Or you say something like this, Lord, if you want me to stop for a donut, there'll be a parking spot in the Duncan parking lot. And on your fifth time by, there's a parking spot in the Duncan parking lot, right? Or maybe you say, Lord, you know, if, if you want me to ask her out on a date, I'll see her at church this morning. Oh, there she is. That, that's playing the same kind of game, right? Can I remind you of a couple of things? In this story, Gideon already knew what God wanted him to do. He's not seeking guidance. He's seeking to overcome his lack of faith. And can I also tell you something? He asks for something miraculous, not something natural. Gideon didn't say, well, if I flip this coin and it comes up heads, then I'll go fight the Midianites. But if it's tails, I'm going home. No, no, this is a supernatural deal. And if you want to know what God wants you to do and you, want, and you need the faith to go do it, You don't need fleeces. What you need is the Bible. We've got a whole lot more of it than God does. And we've got the central story of Jesus where he comes and gives his life on our behalf, pays our debt, rises from the dead to prove that God's satisfied. And then he says, now you go continue what I started. That's a whole lot better than wet fleeces or dry fleeces. We've got the Bible. We've got Jesus. That's what we need. So if you want to know what God wants you to do, you read the Bible. And if you need the faith to do it, you look at Jesus, the one who gave everything for you, and then you follow him with everything he's given you. That's how that story works. Well, the next part of the story, right? So we've done um, fear, faith, then we come to fight. All of chapter 7 is the fight. So if you like Braveheart, you'll like chapter 7. I mean, it's all about being outnumbered. It's all about blood and guts. I mean, it's a great story. But there are some interesting ups and downs in the story. So Gideon sends a, he must have been a half-decent leader, right? Even though he's, you know, scared to death. He summons people to come and fight the Midianites. And 32,000 people show up. 32,000 warriors. What does God do? 32,000. So they're, faced, they're facing off against the Midianites, right? The Midianites have come into the land. He's got 32,000 troops. I don't know how many Midianites. Midian probably had more than that. So what does God say? You need more troops, Gideon. No, no, no. God says, you got way too many people, Gideon. Way too many. Here's how it goes. Announce to the men, anyone who trembles with fear can go home. Look at the last sentence. 22,000 men left. I mean, how'd you like to go to war with these guys? 32,000 show up to fight. God says, Gideon, if anybody's afraid, send him home. So Gideon gets up before. Men, there are 32,000 of you. We've got a great army here. Now, God said, if any of you are afraid, you can go home. 22,000 leave. Two-thirds of the army is headed home. He has 10,000 left. Boy, now you think, man, God, how's God going to wage the battle with only 10,000? Oh, it gets better. God looks and says, oh, Gideon, you still have way too many men. Gideon's probably thinking, What? Well, here's what happens next. The Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I'll thin them out there. If I say this one will go with you, take them with you. If I say that one shouldn't go, don't take them. Now, here's what he says. With the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home and kept 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others? So here's what happened. They get down to the river, and God says, Okay, we got to thin out the troops, so tell all the men to get a drink. Well, uh, some of the guys bend down and take water in their hands like this and bring it up and they cup it, and it says they lap like dogs. They're, they're dog drinkers, right? Just like the eagles, right? They, they lap the water out of their hand. Don't ask me why, but 9,700 seem to get down on their knees and put their faces in the river and drink that way. Like, I don't know what they're thinking. You get your robe all wet? No, I don't know. But 9,700, 9, bend down and drink. 300, scoop it up this way. God says, oh, we got it. Tell the 9,700 they're going home too. Keep the 300. Now we have just the number we need. Now we've got the troop that we can attack. 32,000 to 10,000 to 300. What's God thinking? Well, here's what God's thinking. Actually, read it in chapter 7. Here's what God's thinking. If you go fight the Midianites with 32,000 people and you win, I know how you all think. You're all going to swear it was your strength and your numbers and your wisdom and your military prowess that won the day. That's what you're going to say. Even with 10,000. If you have 10,000 men and you go and beat the Midianites, you're going to say, oh, but we did it in our own strength. God said, no, no, no. If you go with 300, I know You will know I did it and not you. God's not interested in sharing his honor with anybody. Oh, yeah, and you want to read something? You read it in chapter seven. They also have really funny weapons. You know, not swords and spears and, you know, iron chariots. Here are their weapons. Gideon says, okay, now we're going to fight. Each of you, each of the 300, here's what you need you need a pot, you need a torch. And you need a trumpet. I'm thinking, well, I would like a sword, an AK, and an AR. That's what I need. No, no, no. You need a torch, you need a pot, and you need a trumpet. That's all the weapons we're here to have. And the game plan is they go out at night, and they surround the Midianite camp. Gideon says, on my signal, break the pot which you put over your torch, blow your trumpet, and just watch. And so they surround, the only 300 of them, they surround the Midianite camp, and on Gideon's command, they smash the pots, and now all the torches are seen, they blow their trumpets. The Midianites are changing guards. It's the change of guard season. They see all the torches, they hear all the trumpets, they're scared to death. They kill each other. And the Midianites are defeated with torches, pots, and trumpets by 300 men. But it wasn't the 300 men or the weapons. It was God who won the day. Well, that's the fight. It's kind of a cool fight, right? Yeah, but the story doesn't end on a positive note of a fight. The story ends with a fall. In chapter 8, we read this about Gideon. Gideon made the gold that he collected into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town, and all Israel, prostituted themselves by worshiping it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So here's how that worked. Right after the battle, I mean, everybody's praising Gideon. Oh, Gideon, you're great. Gideon, you need to be our king. And Gideon says, no, 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 no. I will not be your king. I will not be your king. But do you ever, um, you ever meet somebody whose words don't match what they, what they do? Kind of a disconnect between what they say and what they do. Well, check out chapter 8. Gideon says, I won't be your king. God is your king. Oh, but by the way, would you give me some gold from the plunder? And Gideon takes the gold, and he has it melted down, and he makes it into an ephod. He makes it into an idol. And as you continue reading in chapter 8, Gideon winds up with 70 sons. What are the chances Gideon had 70 sons with one woman? Uh, not, not, Not too good, right? Gideon had lots of wives. He has 70 sons. Now, let me just ask you, who in the ancient world accumulated vast amounts of wealth, had an idol to determine the future at his disposal, and had lots and lots of wives and concubines? Who lived like that back then? Kings did. Gideon said, I won't be king. Sure, are living like a king. Oh, yeah. And he names his son Abimelech. You know what Abimelech means? Son of the king story doesn't end well. Well, let me tease out just a few lessons. I encourage you this afternoon read through the Gideon story or sometime this week. Let me tease out a couple of lessons and then we're done. We're ready to hear some stories about baptism. We all need to be rescued, right? Because we all have forgotten God and put something else in its place. And soon the forgetting in the center produces rebellion, and we live the cycle and we live out the consequences. We all need to be rescued, don't we? And God rescues us in the most unlikely ways. He ultimately rescues us through a peasant named Jesus, through a death on a cross, and his resurrection in an empty tomb. We never out the tomb, grow. The danger for idolatry, though. Gideon had great faith. Gideon won the victory. In fact, it's after the victory that his major crisis comes. Yes, yeah, so are you really flying high and living well? Uh, that means you may be set up for the biggest failure. But one thing's also sure. The final score is already posted. God told Gideon, even before the incident with the fleeces, Midian would be defeated. God tells us, sin and death are already defeated. You just need to walk out the victory. Learn the lessons of Gideon. I'm not sure which one of those five seasons you're in, but I do know this, a good beginning and a good middle don't don't guarantee a good ending. So let's be humble, let's be careful. Uh, Let's not regret, let's repent to make sure the cycle's complete.